Hi, I'm Sage and welcome to my podcast. Here I will chat with you about my adventures in romance and non-monogamy and all of existence really, starting from my strict fundamentalist Christian childhood all the way through to where I am today, practicing relationship anarchy and still trying to figure life out bit by bit. Here you can expect frank discussions about religion, about trauma, about monogamy and of course about sex. I hope you'll have fun, I hope you'll find it interesting and most of all I hope you'll join the conversation. Hello friends, it's so lovely to be here again and to welcome you to episode 4 today. I'm sitting in my makeshift studio in my bedroom and it is most likely one of the coldest days of this year. Apparently large parts of South Africa are going to be covered in snow by the end of uh, tomorrow. And I've got my heater on in my bedroom but my bedroom's so tiny, especially with me sitting on the floor, that I have to keep it really close to me, there's no other floor space. So my one knee is getting uncomfortably warm while the rest of me is still really cold. Let's see how that works out. In any case, welcome to my fourth episode. I'm so excited about this episode. I have so much I want to say and I hope I manage to convey all of it. This podcast really is a dream come true for me. And podcasts have meant so much to me. They, uh, being able to make my own one is such a privilege after having truly been carried and supported by other podcasts, especially during lockdown last year. Last year was an exceptionally difficult year. I'm sure, I'm sure most of you feel the same. I, in my personal life, I just went through a lot of heartbreak. I had just before that gone through what was an incredibly painful breakup to me. And I'm calling it a breakup for simplicity's sake, but I suppose it wasn't really a breakup. In the first place, it wasn't really a romantic relationship the way I had previously understood relationships, romantic relationships. It was a thing of its own. It was a connection, a sexual, romantic and friendship connection. And then the sexual component ended, as did the romantic one. And I would like to call it a de-escalation. That is what these kinds of changes are often called in relationship anarchy. Just a moving away from one thing towards another thing. But honestly, it felt like a death. It felt like a break, like a breakup. And so for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to call it that. And we had been trying to keep the friendship alive, although that was very hard because I was in so much pain. And by the time that lockdown arrived, we hadn't seen each other in a while. And as lockdown progressed, I felt as if my heart was being broken all over again because I was losing my closest friend. And I think we don't give enough honor, I almost want to say, to the pain of heartbreak. When you go through a breakup, people tend to kind of expect you to be fine. And I think that breakups of some are some of the most significant kinds of pain that we can go through in our life because it's so existential. You know, it touches you to the core of who you are. It, it activates all of one's childhood wounding, all of one's abandonment fears, which we all have. It activates our rejection pain. It activates our fear of being alone. It makes us wonder what's wrong with us. Whether we're the one doing the breaking up or whether we were on the receiving end, breakups are significant. They are painful. Some of the most intense heartache I've ever experienced was because of breakups and I am not getting any better at them. <laughs> I, I think I'm notoriously bad at, at heartbreak. They always make it look so cute in the movies, you know. If I think about Zoe de Chanel in New Girl crying on the couch while watching dirty dancing over and over again. I wish I were that cute when my heart is broken, but I am a drunken, unshowered mess. A snotty, weeping, depressed, wobbly human. And 
it takes a long time to get better. People tend to think, you know, a few weeks of grieving and then you, you do a little ceremony and burn his things or whatever, burn his photos. To me, that has never been the case. In any case, so last year I went through that, but the, the size of my, of my pain, of my agony, made it clear to me that this, there was also more to it than just the breakup. And shortly before that, my family had also gone through an incredibly difficult time and some information had come to light, which I found really, really difficult to process. And so it was really as if all my chickens were coming home to roost and a lot of unprocessed trauma came up and I started educating myself finally on trauma and learning vocabulary for it and watching YouTube videos about the effects of one's childhood wounding. And it all just wanted to be known and felt and acknowledged and wept over all at once. When you're absolutely sobbing from the depths of your soul in the middle of the night, there's something incredibly powerful about that. I think I, I, I loosened something, some blockage that I wept open. But it was incredibly messy and really, really hard to be with. And I had nowhere to go. It was hard lockdown. It was just me and my dog on a farm. Sure, I had my neighbors and we were quite close, but for the majority of the time, it was just me. And many things carried me through, amongst other things, writing bad poems, going for long walks, messy, messy weeping, my dog, and podcasts. Two of my favorites were Amanda Palmer's podcast, The Art of Asking Everything, which I would highly recommend, so many beautiful conversations, and then Tara Brock, who's a psychologist and meditation teacher. I used to fall asleep to her voice every night, I still often do, and her wisdom, her sort of compassionate approach to life, the sense of allowing everything that is, sort of seeped into my consciousness. And even today when something happens that I find really difficult, I find myself praying, may this serve, may this serve the awakening of my heart. And that comes from Tara Brock. So to get to do this myself, to get to make a podcast and perhaps reach people, perhaps just have conversations and just spread some gentleness is, makes me so happy. I'm just so glad to be here, even though... This heater is burning my knee. <laughs> right, so today we're talking about love. We're going to try to at least. This is an ongoing conversation. When I was nine and a half, we moved back from France to South Africa. The background to this was that my dad was, I would say becoming stranger and stranger, or at least outwardly stranger and stranger. He had recently received a message from God that we were meant to become missionaries in China. Then he accepted a teaching job in China just to sort of scout out the country and left us all in France while he went to teach there for a few months. Um, and during that time, my grandparents bought us all plane tickets to come and visit in South Africa. And then my mom decided this is it. We're not coming back. And we all went to South Africa. I'll never forget the excitement of this country that I'd been hearing about and daydreaming of for 10 years. And um, it was amazing meeting my aunts, meeting my cousins for the first time. My mom just stepping foot on her home soil for the first time since they left 11 years before. And I was determined to make this my second chance. I had been increasingly lonely in the last few years in France. I can't remember much of it, which is probably an indication that it was terrible, but I know that I was very, very bullied in primary school. I was, and um, I used to come home every day crying. It became so bad that my parents took me out of school and homeschooled me. So in my last year in France, I was homeschooled and I was just really isolated and really lonely. So when we came to South Africa, I told myself, I was going to make friends. I was going to be, I was going to redo myself. I was going to basically make over myself and make friends. And I did to a large extent. This was my second chance and I did make more friends. It became gradually easier. But at the same time, I might have decided this is my second chance, but I was still definitely clinging to my last crush from France called Samuel. 
So he was the one person that I, quote unquote, brought with me to South Africa. And for my 10th birthday, I received a little journal, which was my first journal of perhaps 15 so far. I've never stopped journaling since. And here is one of the first entries. And it was written in one of those milky pens. You remember those milky pen days? So it was written in an assortment of colors of milky pens. And this was on the 17th of September 1999. And the entry goes like this. Samuel is large. I don't know what large means. What does it mean when to say someone's large when you're kids? Anyway, Samuel is large. He has brown eyes and brown hair. He is very quiet and very friendly. I love him. With a little picture of a heart. <laughs> so I had this elaborate daydream that I was going to go back to France as an adult and we would find each other and it was going to be amazing. He was, of course, by then perhaps the 13th person that I had fallen in love with. But this was, this was the one. Fast forward about three months and we find a new entry in my journal that goes as follows. The heading is in love with a few exclamation points. I have very suddenly fallen in love with Ray when he joined our school. I would describe him like this. Black hair, medium size, long nose, and that's all. Goodbye. <laughs> that little entry does not do the intensity of that crush justice because I remember it being an intense experience. You know that awkward Oh, that's, it's actually quite terrible thinking back oh, back to it. That feeling when you're sitting in your class and you can kind of feel them behind you. They might be sitting a few seats behind you and you're kind of uncomfortably aware of where they are. And during break time on the playground, you kind of you're standing there with this group of friends and you have this acute, uncomfortable experience of not being able to prevent yourself from looking towards him all the time and sort of peeking at what he's doing now. It's terrible. Oh my goodness, I'm so glad I'm not 10 anymore. In any case, shortly after that, I started worrying. Because then shortly after being in love with Ray, I fell in love with another boy called Jan. And at this point, I did a calculation, wrote down all the names of all the boys I'd been in love with, and came to the sum total of, I think, about 15, which was more than one a year. And I started thinking, how am I going to know? How am I going to know? when I'm when I found the one because all of these experiences have been intense every single crush I've had was the crush I journaled over I made elaborate fantasies about in my mind very often about being taken away whisked away it often entailed him being on horseback and me playing a violin for some sort of reason and us quite literally riding off into the sunset together which I now realize were perhaps more escape fantasies than love fantasies. But I I was worried. And so I asked my mom. And at that point, my parents had gotten back together. My dad was back from China. They were back together. And then they had split up again. And this time it looked serious. My mom was starting divorce proceedings. And I was 11. 11 is a terrible age. I don't know why people always talk about being a teenager as being the worst. I found those preteen years to be really intense. For me at least. I was I was getting really resentful about the fact that I, I was starting to increasingly realize that my family wasn't like other families, that my parents' relationship was more messy than others and that we were more up and down. And the, like I said, this most recent split that my parents had had was very messy. At one point, my dad kidnapped us, refused to bring us back to my mom. There was a lot of crying back and forth. In any case, at some point, I asked my mom, I don't know why I asked her, but I asked her, Mom, how do you know when it's the one? Because it always feels so real. So what if you accidentally end up with the wrong one and then the one after that was meant to be the one? And I think I didn't maybe realize it back then, but I touched on a very profound fear for many, many people. That fear that you might end up with the wrong one and the right one was just around the corner. Like, how do you know? At which point do you decide the person that you're with is the quote-unquote right one for you back then I didn't know that this was going to be such an existential question I thought no there's definitely some sort of clear sign something that happens and my mom is going to explain it to me and I will never forget the shock and the disappointment when my mom couldn't give me a response she sort of sat with it and looked baffled and after a while she said something like well you 
you just choose. And that really sent me into into a complete tailspin. I couldn't believe it. Adults don't know either. Like they they don't know how to find the one. Like this is rigged. I mean, how how do you ever make a choice? Of course, of course, the thing was that I had grown up expecting a love story to happen to me, and expecting that love story very specifically to be between one boy and one girl or one man and one woman because not only was I surrounded by popular culture attesting to that but more importantly really my religion said that I mean the bible starts with the story of Adam and Eve Adam being created and wandering around the garden giving names to all the animals and the creatures and then saying to God Hey, God, what's up with this? All the animals are are in pairs. All of them have a friend. Can I get a friend too? And God being like, well, you know, I was kind of hoping we could be besties, but fine. I suppose it makes sense. I'll make you a female. And he makes Adam fall asleep and takes Adam's rib and turns it into a woman. I mean, how close can you get? Made to fit, made to order, mates for life. Of course, that goes south really really fast when Eve eats the fruit and then Adam eats the fruit and then when God says what happened Adam is like it's Eve's fault and so it began (laughs) nonetheless the story is there and it's repeated throughout the Bible sure in the Old Testament there are some interesting variations on the theme you know Solomon and his whole harem and Jacob with the two sisters, Leah and Rachel, and David and Bathsheba, and all sorts of interesting variations and definitely some polygamy in the mix. But then by the New Testament, it becomes clear that it's one man, one woman. And in fact, I grew up with this verse being quoted to me quite often, mainly by my dad, but also we saw it in the church a lot. You've probably heard this in sermons at weddings. The Pharisees came to Jesus. This is in um, Matthew 19, verse 3. Testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. I mean, that's some pretty intense phrasing. They become one flesh. No wonder we think we're looking for our other half, literally. We're looking for our rib. We're looking for the person who's going to make us complete and become one flesh. And we will leave all others and cleave to them or cling to them. And so we grow up with this idea, this ideal of finding a mate as sanctioned by God, as even ordered by God, as the ultimate thing to aspire to. And we're so steeped in in those ideas that even if we aren't consciously religious, I think it has permeated throughout society. And it is no longer just... A dream of finding a person or persons who you might be romantically involved with it becomes an imperative it becomes almost a God-given duty and so it switches in our minds from hoping to find people to establish meaningful connections with to having really a law a sense of obligation sort of an idea that God wants a specific kind of relationship for us and that we shouldn't stray from that, that it is one man and one woman. And I think those things permeate our consciousness to a deep level and start affecting what we think relationships should look like and start seeping through into ideas like we should retain emotional intimacy for only one person, we should retain sexual intimacy only for one person. And then when those ideas are challenged, They're not only challenged on a practical level. Our responses are not only, oh, wow, I I don't have enough time for more than one partner. No, it 
gets to the heart of who we are. We, it challenges our deepest beliefs. We shouldn't love more than one person. And so it becomes a moral issue instead of a practical thing. Does that make sense? I'll expand on it just now, but I also want to say that I don't think the Bible was the origin of monogamy, or at least of this idea of God-sanctioned couplehood. I think it began long before that, and I've read I read two good books in the recent past, actually, that try and theorize about where monogamy came from, because it does seem as if monogamy was not always a norm amongst humans. But these two books, namely Sex at Dawn by Chris Ryan and Casilda Jitha, and Untrue by Wednesday Martin, they both propose that monogamy began with the advent of agriculture. When we started changing our lifestyles from a nomadic one of living off the land, of moving as food moved, to settling and to more scarce resources. And in the process, in this scarcity, it became practical, or at least perhaps it became practical for men to limit women's access to only one mate. At least that is what they propose, and I think it's a very interesting idea. I would definitely recommend both books. Whatever the case might be, this is where it leaves us, chasing the dream of this one true love. And like I said, it goes deep. I mean, it still goes deep for me, this this idea that to be special, to be chosen, I should be the only one chosen. There should be exclusivity for love to be real. Recently in conversations with friends, specifically friends who've listened to my podcast, a few of them said something along the lines of, right, I agree, I agree with your idea that monogamy shouldn't be the only way of living, but I couldn't, I couldn't possibly have more than one romantic relationship. It sounds absolutely exhausting. And I get that. I'm not saying that everybody shouldn't just start dating more than one person. Um, my one friend even asked me whether I think that monogamy is wrong. She said she gets it. She gets the idea of non-monogamy. But for her, currently, she's in a monogamous relationship and it works beautifully. There are different people, but she loves the feeling of having a person to come home to. And she wonders whether I think that that kind of monogamy is really societally imposed and that really we should free ourselves from that. And many people do feel defensive when I talk about non-monogamy as if it puts their relationship structure in danger, as if I'm saying that their relationship structures are wrong and that we should free ourselves from the slavery of monogamy. So I want to be very clear that I don't think monogamy is wrong or that it's a societal brainwashing and that we should therefore get rid of it. I mean, if we're going to talk about societal brainwashing, you know, where do we start and where do we stop? But sometimes society is useful. It's, it helps us in many ways. I don't think we should just shake off the yoke unquestioningly. But I think there's a difference between what I would coin ideological monogamy and functional or practical monogamy. And what I mean by that is a monogamy ideology is when you think that God said there shall be one man and one woman and you will leave your father and your mother and be with this person forever and that it is God sanctioned and that therefore all other types of relationships are wrong. And like I said, I think that thinking does run deeper within us than we think. But that is completely different from saying, listen, life is weird and hard and I have limited resources and energy when I find a person that I really like I want to invest in them and I want to not expend my few hours of daylight that I have left over after sleeping and working eight hours on cultivating more than one vibrant alive intense long-term commitment that makes complete sense and I'm not I'm not against that or against any other other arrangement that we come up with ourselves between one or and two or more people. And so I, I told her that I think it's beautiful. I love the phrase that she used, coming home to someone. It just sounds like that's the thing we want, right? 
I think at the core of human existence lies a little pocket of aloneness. A constant need to connect and be known. And that feeling of coming home to someone or someones, even if it doesn't actually mean you're coming home to them, even if you're not really living together, that sense of exhaling and being seen, that is a solve to that eternal longing for connection. Although I don't think it is a complete solve, I think it is the human condition to long for others, to long to be united with others. And to never have that fully and permanently filled. And I think that's the beauty of it, right? We, we wander around fluctuating between aloneness and connectedness. And that's, that's the human journey. So what I'm trying to say is that partnership feels good. Investment feels good. Time is limited. Compatibility is rare. So whatever works for you, great. As long as it isn't an ideology. Because what I really get increasingly excited about is the range of possibilities that we can embrace once we let go of the ideology of one day finding the one. That idea of the one that is so closely interlinked with religion and with patriarchy and with societal conditioning. Once we can let go of that, all of a sudden there's room for play. Sure, you might have one committed partner and then... To your surprise, you might find yourself being attracted to someone else. What if you could explore that? What if you could eke out some sort of agreement with your partner? Or perhaps not. Perhaps you just fantasize together about someone. Or perhaps it simply entails being allowed deep emotional intimacy with other people. And feeling the joy that comes when you can be emotionally intimate with many people without having the concomitant guilt that we so often have. So really, how many options do we have that we have not allowed ourselves to explore because we've been shackled to the idea of finding one person? What if, for instance, we got rid of this idea that love, romantic love, should last forever? What if instead we embrace the fact that things change and that a successful relationship might not be a lifelong one? At this point, I would like to play you a clip a voice note that I received from a listener called James who makes some really beautiful comments on this topic. So here's James' voice note. One of the topics that I really would like to say something about um, and I think which is something that sort of started me on on this journey was the realization that uh, for many monogamous couples, especially within sort of uh, purity culture, evangelical Christianity, uh, and that sort of highly religious culture, which really permeates society to a broader extent. It's not something that's limited to people who practice those sort of fundamentalist um, forms of religion. It actually seeps into the rest of the culture. Um, and that is the issue uh, around loneliness. Um, my parents are in their 70s. Uh, they've been married for over 50 years. And in the last few months, my mother has filed for divorce. My father is an alcoholic. Um, they have no friends. My mother has a small art group that she gets together with uh, once every two weeks or so. But uh, in terms of intimacy and intimate friendships, uh, I really am um, not aware of anyone in their lives. My father certainly um, has no close friends whatsoever. Um, and I realized that, that this is how the system is actually designed. Um, it is designed with that fairy tale idea that the, the two meet, get together, get married, and then live happily ever after. The only problem is that that hardly ever happens. I'm sure that there are uh, sort of individual cases where that could happen, where a couple could be extremely happy. The only problem is that because of uncertainties, because we really don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, and because death is always around the corner, the one partner could just die or run over by a bus, and, and that's it. Then what? Then you're kind of left starting from scratch again. 
and tragedies like that are, are, uh, are relatively common too. Um, and I mean, it's not unheard of in older cases for, you know, when one spouse dies, the other just all meaning to life really disappears and, and they end up dying a few months later as well. But the tragedy, the, the greater tragedy, is not those sudden, you know, deaths in, in you know, couples that are very intimate. It's the, the, the gradual disintegration of the relationship over time um, because of resentment, because one spouse is not able to meet the other person's needs entirely, the other partner's needs entirely. And so things like resentment creep in. Um, the other problem, I guess, within in Christianity is that it is largely untransformative. Um, I always think that uh, most of the people in those kinds of societies really don't have the tools available to them uh, to be able to deal with complex psychological problems. They have an inherent distrust of psychology and of the, the any psychological uh, or psychiatric type of treatments or methods. Um, you know, they're certainly not into any form of meditation, they're anti-yoga, any of those um, tools that are fairly common in, in more of the Eastern religions. They um, fear them. Um, and, you know, it's all about the mind and, you know, having the right uh, theology and the right beliefs. Um, and so they, they are not able to do much work on themselves. And most of them are really untransformed. And that, that creates relationship dynamics that are, are really problematic and end up often just getting worse over time. Now, the problem with purity culture and, and um, how the system is sort of set up is that often as a young person, I mean, everyone will remember their university days and just how many friends you might have had, um, friends of both genders, um, and how you connected so intimately uh, with, a, with a number of people um, who met, you know, uh, many different needs. When you got married, all of those friendships took second place. Um, and uh, by second place, I mean a long way down as you focused almost all your attention on uh, your spouse. And, um, you know, sort of any connection with uh, people of the same sex is, you know, would be encouraged. But, um, you know, for me as, as a male, um, I always struggled with other male friendships um, because I was never somebody who was really into uh, rugby or soccer or um, motor cars or guns or hunting or fishing. I mean, I, mean, I love the outdoors and uh, I'm active there, but um, and I love sport, but I love participating in sport, not going to watch sport. And, um, you know, whenever you sort of have in conversation, those are the topics that tend to come up and they tend to be very external topics. Uh, there isn't much intimacy, um, you know, at least from my perspective. Uh, in that. And um, so, you know, whenever you uh, get together as a couple, I mean, that's the way you relate. You can only really actually have friends together as a couple. You get together for a bri, whatever. And what happens then is that the, the genders polarize. So the women get uh, go off to one side and have their discussion and the men stand around the fire and have their discussions. And uh, inevitably, I would want to migrate towards the women's discussions because they were far more intimate, far more interesting from my perspective. Um, but it does mean that you, over time, you think this is normal and you, you know, you, you suddenly discover that you're really quite lonely. And um, that your spouse is the one that, you know, whilst you might have an intimate friendship with them, um, a great sex life, it really, you know, if you're lucky, um, it's, it is only one person that's only uh, reflecting one angle of yourself, um, only one mirror, um, and you only therefore see one side of yourself. You don't have multiple facets of yourself reflected back to you, um, and you just don't have that broader um, intimacy. Um, but you don't know that you're missing it. You, you know, you think it's normal, and I think that's the tragedy. Um, I think I deeply when I saw the breakdown of my parents' marriage um, and just how lonely they were, um, 
I think my mom knows how lonely she's been for years, you know, 30 years of neglect. Um, and uh, But my father is completely unaware of it, you know. Uh, he'll just sit and read his book. Um, hasn't been out for a walk on the beach or anything like that in, in years. And just, you know, um, is so has such tunnel vision um, that I don't think he's even aware that there's beauty, that there's love, that there's anything outside of, of himself um, to be enjoyed. And that is the, the tragedy of this, this system um, that demands the uh, um, fidelity and not just in a sexual sense, but fidelity from an emotional sense. Fidelity, you know, you know, draws the line. It's such a dualistic system that, you know, there's either, it's either all, all or nothing, you know. Um, and so because of in any dualistic system like that, you draw the line as far back as you possibly can because you just want to stay away from any risk um, and in any uncertainty, you know, that might cause disruption of the, or the bond, um, the primary bond. And I think this is just, um, it's a tragedy. It's, a, it's, it's just, you know, why we have uh, so many, so many people that are disconnected, disconnected mostly from themselves. Um, they don't know who they are. They certainly don't have any love for themselves. And because they have no love for themselves, um, uh, they, they just have no love to offer anyone else. Um, it's almost a hyper-individualistic world with very little community, even though they may have churches and, and all these other structures. Uh, they will very, very easily walk away from those structures. There is no, there is no real uh, deep connection that's going to keep them there. You know, they just have to have some, some disagreement over the theology or the doctrine or the beliefs, and off they go and find another church uh, with the same superficiality again. Anyway, that's my thought. Thank you, James, for that beautiful and sad contribution. Honestly, it made me really sad to listen to this because I can relate to so much of it. And I think that many people can. If I look at um, many of the people who have been together for a very long time whose marriage is according to most definitions successful I see that pervasive loneliness and it's not their fault you know it's it's so sad that this is what we are taught that you need to outsource all your needs to one person and that that should replace community that sense of community that we have like you said for instance when we're at varsity or when we're kids and we have many friends that one person is meant to replace all of that. And when that does not happen, we become resigned to becoming lonely. I'm so sorry to hear about your parents and about um, how hard that must be for you as well. And yeah, I could feel, I could almost feel that sense of loneliness as you were talking about them. And I really wish for both of them to develop deep meaningful friendships and I wish that for you too I hope that that in your in your journey many beautiful connections come your way I also thought it was really interesting what you said about Christianity being untransformative and I want to be clear that I'm not speaking out against Christianity as a whole although I'm not I'm not a Christian and I did find many issues in Christianity but I'm not saying that people should stop being Christians. I do, however, want to criticize many of the thoughts and of the ways of being a Christian that I have encountered. And that was really interesting to me because it, it highlighted something I hadn't really put into words before. And that is the thing that very often in Christianity, we're taught that if, if you're in pain, if something's not working, you can at best get counseling from the pastor and then you should submit yourself to God's will and try harder. And I definitely saw that with my parents, with my mom staying with my dad, um, them getting back together over and over again because she thought that was what the Bible demanded. And that permeates not only in, in marriages but also in other areas. Like you said, in psychology when people struggle, when people are depressed, when they... Uh, suffer from any kind of mental illness it becomes very isolating because people 
in the church, in the community, either experience this as a punishment from God or as a sign that there is sin in your life or as a sign that you need to repent for something or forgive someone or try harder, pray harder, submit to God's will harder. And that is so incredibly isolating. I also thought it was interesting what you said about, sure, same-sex friendships being encouraged, but no opposite gender friendships really being permitted once you're in a couple. And especially about what you said about male friendships very often feeling insufficient to you and sort of on the experiential level instead of a true intimacy. And many, I would say most of my male friends have told me the same, that they tend to actually want to gravitate towards female connections towards spending more time with their female friends or feeling really disappointed when a mixed gender group gets together and they get stuck in the male corner talking about sports or cars and this points towards a wider issue that that I would prefer dedicating an entire episode to and that I would actually prefer for men to to share their experiences about rather than me commenting on it but I feel that there is a it's sad that In my experience, men struggle to develop intimacy with other men. And I think that's also a result of societal conditioning, of the patriarchy, etc., etc. So that points to another issue. And that also points to the fact that there is a dearth of intimate relationships in our lives. And that we often don't know, we don't have the vocabulary, we don't have the tools to overcome that. And I think for men it's even more so than for women because women are, I would say, conditioned, societally conditioned to be able to develop more intimate friendships with other women at least. What you said about um, when you have a partner, they reflect one aspect back of yourself to you. I thought that was also really on point. Um, I think that's what relationships are, right? It's people reflecting us back to ourselves, us getting the chance to experience ourselves from different angles to really feel into what it feels like for me to exist around you how you experience me how I experience you and in the process really feeling ourselves having ourselves mirrored back to us and for that we need more than one mirror you're right so this this just leaves me with with this question again how can we develop more connections how can we cultivate more intimacy with people Where can we find this? Can we come up with a new language, with new ways of being? And at this point, I would like to read to you people's comments. I asked for people to write and tell me what what it means to be in love. And in my Instagram post asking about this, I said, what, if anything, is the difference between this and platonic love? What does it mean to be in love? And specifically, I also wrote, once the infatuation has passed, you know, those initial hormones, once the hormones have abated, how would you define being in love? And I received so many beautiful responses that I'm going to read to you. And the first of those is, love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own and another's spiritual growth. Extending oneself, the will to extend yourself to nurture your own and another spiritual growth. Isn't that beautiful? Another said, to recognize the other, not as an extension of the self, but as a full being in their own right. Someone said, to hold space for that person, to show them with actions, warmth, kisses and generosity. Someone else wrote, obligation and responsibility, which I thought was really interesting and I would love to hear from this person whether you meant this in a positive or a negative sense, do you mean that you experience being in love as an endless task list and you don't like it? Or do you mean that you welcome this sense of obligation and responsibility? Because to me, the word obligation is laden with negative connotations. But there is also a beauty in that sense of duty, of I promise to show up. So I'd love to hear more about that. And then someone commented, I love this, I know I love someone when I want to be vulnerable and open with them, in spite of my fears. I'm an anarchist hoe with my heart. Someone else wrote, When authenticity and connection meet, to be in love is to belong. 
And I want to pause there because I really think that gets to the heart of it, right? When you can bring your full self, when you can be authentic and connect, that sense of belonging, again, that sense of coming home. Someone wrote, feeling seen, supported and held by someone, having sleepovers with your best friend every night. And then someone else wrote, and this also gets to the heart of what I think it means to be human, for the person to make me feel not alone anymore, to feel fulfilled and completely happy and at peace around them. And someone else wrote, a choice you make to keep the connection between you and someone else thriving. What's interesting is a lot of these responses are about choice, about the will to see someone else, to walk with someone else on their growth path, to hold space for them, to share who you are with them, to see them, to open your heart in spite of your fears. And what's also interesting about these responses is that although I think they're all beautiful and moving, they don't get me any closer to my question, what is the difference between being in love, i.e. romantic love, and platonic love or friendship love? Because all of these hold equally true for any other person we love, for my siblings, for my close friends. This is what I feel towards them. This is what I would write in a mission statement and give to my friends. I promise to hold space for who you are. I promise to walk this road with you. I promise to encourage you to show who I am, to show up fully, to honor my responsibilities. You know, those things are true of not just romantic love. And so I'm still wondering what, if anything, the difference is. Someone else wrote me a longer piece that I'd love to read to you. And I think this is truly poignant. And it also, again, speaks to what it means to be human, to some core element of that longing for the other, that longing for being united. So let me read it to you. It's on my phone. Being in love, I would define as wanting to move so close with someone that the distance between me and you becomes irrelevant. And that is scary because it means a dance between your own movement and the movement of another. To keep both's autonomy intact is difficult and may be only possible in the long run if it is done in shorter bursts or else if one or both erase their own voluntary movement in deference to the joint movement i.e. monogamous patriarchy. I think my journey is to be more okay with the discomfort of wanting that closeness but never actually getting it. Wanting to throw myself into the flames but staying only near its warmth. Wanting to eat the whole bowl of chocolate pudding but only taking a mouthful. Wanting my life to revolve around someone but only allowing myself to dance with them. Ah, maybe that's it the dance between longing and space and moving closer and moving further away. At this point, I would also like to venture a definition of being in love. Yesterday, all of a sudden, the weather turned. We'd been having these balmy spring days and all of a sudden, it became really cold and I looked at the weather report and it said snow is expected and a very strong wind started blowing, gale force strength. I was walking outside and... The cold air was whipping in my face and I was feeling the excitement of it and also a small sense of disappointment because I am really ready for spring to come. And my heart just said yes, yes to this weather and then yes to the spring and then yes to the long warm summer days and getting sunburned and then yes to autumn and then yes to winter again. All of it is beautiful, all of it is valuable. I want to be here for all of it and maybe that's what it feels like to be in love once the infatuation is passed it is seeing a person or persons and saying you fill me with all you are beautiful and i remember this frequently enough that i want to stick around to witness your beauty however like with weather and at this point i'm wondering if you can hear the thunder there's this, this incredible thunderstorm here. It, it happens maybe, maybe once a year. So this is really magical and really suited, I think. Because what I wanted to say is, like with the weather, 
some climates work better for us than others. While we might appreciate the harsh beauty of Antarctica or of the Sahara Desert, all of us are better suited to some places than others. So being moved alone, I do not think, makes for romantic love or being in love. I think it's a matter of traveling to different places and finding a climate and a landscape that resonates, that resonates enough for you to decide to make your home there for a while, perhaps forever, although the odds are you're going to move again, or you might migrate between two places or three places, or you might constantly be on the move but know what your preferences are, or you might settle down and have a holiday home, and I think I'm pushing this metaphor a bit far. This thunder. But on the one hand, you can be moved by something, but then there is also the element of choosing, which came up in so many of the responses, choosing the place that feels like it belongs, like you belong. And I think for me, that approaches what romantic love might be. If there is a difference between that and platonic love, which I'm not always certain about, but there's an element of this moves me, this is beautiful, and also this makes sense, I can live here. There is enough overlap, there is enough warmth, there is enough comfort, there is enough liking, enough shared interest. I like this landscape, I like this weather. So not only does it move me, but I want to stick around for it. Because not everything that moves us is necessarily something we want to stick around for or we should stick around for. And I think that we should at least imagine graying the lines a bit and consider what a world could be like if we raised kids with our best friends and lived with platonic partners and if we didn't delineate everything so strictly, if it wasn't so binary, you know. But yeah, that's the closest I can come to a definition and it's very incomplete because in all honesty, I'm not sure what, if anything, is the difference. So if you have a suggestion, please send it through and I will leave you at this point. I'm going to reread that last part of this person's response and I will leave you with these beautiful words. I think my journey is to be more okay with the discomfort of wanting that closeness but never actually getting it. Wanting to throw myself into the flames, but staying only near its warmth. Wanting to eat the whole bowl of chocolate pudding, but only taking a mouthful. Wanting my life to revolve around someone, but only allowing myself to dance with them. <laughs>